0: Most people are generally aware of the story that philosophy began a very long time ago in Greece, and the three largely responsible for its beginnings were Plato, Aristotle, and the great Socrates. But they weren't the first philosophers. There was a rich tradition of thinkers who came before the big three, an unaffiliated group who demonstrated a degree of curiosity that would become synonymous with philosophical thinking and lay the foundation of what would eventually be known as Greek rationalism. Scholarship calls this group of thinkers the pre-Socratics, but rather than being defined by just having come before Socrates, the pre-Socratic philosophical project was that of the nature of things. Where do things come from? What are things made of? And can something come from nothing? Though today, in the light of our scientific knowledge, we find the reflections on nature perhaps simplistic and incomplete, there is still a charm to their thinking from which much can still be gained. Hello and welcome to Open Door Philosophy. Gripping the light fantastic in Plato's world of forms, I'm Andrew's former philosophy teacher, Derek Parsons.
1: And living the Aristotelian good life, I'm Mr. Parsons, former philosophy student, Andrew Graziano.
0: Welcome to episode 41, where we're going to dive into and talk a lot about this group of philosophers called the Pre-Socratics, uh, which is really a pretty cool, pretty cool group of people. But anyway, you know, before we get to that, Andrew... How's school treating you?
1: It's good. It's busy, busy as normal, but uh, having a good time, learning a lot of cool stuff. Um, yeah, I guess. I guess that's all. I, I've been. Um, I feel like. I feel. Yeah. I feel like nothing's that, nothing's new. Nothing's exciting.
0: But Andrew, Heraclitus says everything changes. This is the nature of things. Nope. <laughs> well, you can argue with them later in the episode.
1: I'm looking forward to it. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. Uh, so, you know the biggest the biggest news in my life is that I got a new pair of glasses, which is always exciting and, and troubling to people. You know, when someone shows up with a new pair of glasses, and you know, now that I think about it, you know, obviously, no one who's listening can see these glasses, and I was going to point them towards the website, but now that I was thinking about it. The picture on the website is like two glasses ago. So, you know, things do always change, Andrew, like my glasses. (laughs) Oh, geez. Uh, Today, it's all about the pre-Socratics. And everyone, we'd love to hear your thoughts and reflections on this group of philosophers and their theories. So hit us up on our socials on Twitter and Instagram or email us at contact at com. And make sure to visit our website, too,
1: where you can find all our past episodes arranged by topic, chronologically, and by guests who have appeared on the show. And we also have really cool resources associated with episodes, so check that out, too.
0: That's right. Check it out. So, the Presocratics. Andrew, (laughs) you know, uh, clarifying terms is always an important activity in philosophy. Um, so what is, or who was, or uh, what is a pre-Socratic? The simple
1: answer is people who came before Socrates, but that's, that's a generous, well, that's not always true. There's some, there's some pre-Socratics who we consider who lived during the time of Socrates as well, might've been born around the same time or maybe a little bit after him. So yeah, they're just, I would say the best way to think of pre-Socratics is when Socrates came around, he kind of altered the fundamental shape of philosophy into thinking about, well, really really using different methods to investigate the world, I would say, and kind of turning away from things that we'll talk about in this episode and, and that we'll highlight more next week, or next episode, where we talk about Socrates more. Basically, pre-Socratics is these people who are probably philosophers who came before or during the same time as Socrates, but really just were using this method of investigating the world that was pre-Socratic, pre-Socrates' method of exploration.
0: Yeah, and so it's not like they're a school of philosophy, like say Stoicism or anything like that. It's that they, one, came before Socrates, and two, their concerns were largely about nature and the natural world, versus Socrates, like you said, turns that and philosophy becomes more about the person in society and it becomes much more inward about character and virtue. But a lot of people think that philosophy began, I mean, this is what we're taught in high school, right? Uh, Philosophy began in Athens, like in in ancient Greece and, uh, you know, the big three, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. But, But I'd like to, you know, I'd always push back against that term, you know, like Socrates is the father of Philosophy, as if like he was the beginning of it or something. Philosophy's always been done, I would imagine, depending on the types of philosophy we're talking about, along before Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, even before the pre Socratics. There would have been all kinds of, and certainly have evidence of this, all kinds of people philosophizing about things that just maybe we don't identify as philosophy today. For instance, I think naturally, one of the first things that anyone would philosophize about is their existence, right? And, and what that means here on this planet and why they're here and what's the purpose and all of those types of things. And we do see evidence of that, especially in the great epics that go back thousands of years before even Plato and Socrates. Uh, a good example is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is kind of known as the first epic poem that was written in Mesopotamia. And it addresses things like the value of friendship and the experience of loss, the inevitability of death and the meaning of life. And and if you want to go Greek, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer, which was composed during what's referred to as the Greek Dark Ages, which was even before these pre-Socratics, the Iliad addresses all kinds of things like fate and free will and honor and love and friendship, and especially with Achilles, the destructive power of hubris So that's one thing that, of course, people have always thought about that is philosophical. And I think the other thing, and this gets us to the pre-Socratics, is just the natural world that's around us. Like, how does all this stuff work? And where does it come from? That seems like a very, well, excuse the phrase, a very natural uh, (laughs) question to ask. So these are our first philosophical wonderings about the world itself.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. We see that the Greeks and a lot of older societies around this time were really interested in meaning of life, like you were saying, and investigating the natural world. And when we're really starting to see these first philosophers, these first Western Greek philosophers come up. And they're, I think the reason that we're so captivated by them is it's the first time in the Western world that I'm aware of that these philosophers are trying to come up with like an explanation of like all things kind of they're trying to explain mm-hmm. the makeup of everything that's around them and that's i don't know i mean they're wrong like we'll see we'll see in the episode they're wrong about it but <laughs> right. it's it's kind of the first time that they're doing that in, in giving reasons why what's made up around them is how it's made up around them and so it's it's a very ontological study of being um they're studying how things are in the world how they exist what they are very big questions that I guess I don't know. I, I mean, I'm assuming that these are the first time that they've been talked about in in the Western world. But
0: well, documented anyway, right? And speaking of documentation, with a lot of these pre-Socratics, we don't have a lot of what's left of their original works. So you know, we're going to talk about Heraclitus and Thales, and really only fragments remain of their philosophy that we have today. And a lot of what we know about them is through other philosophers who have talked about them. You know, Socrates talks about Heraclitus and the Stoics talk about Heraclitus as well. So so we know about these philosophers and kind of what they thought, partially from their fragments, but also partially from what other writers, historians, playwrights, whatever, said about them in their work. So kind of one of the things that, that's fun about philo- these pre-Socratics is given that we don't know a lot about them, we can be very creative with how we think about them and with what they wrote, we can also be very creative with them. So I think listeners will see that as we go throughout their work.
1: They're quite, I don't know uh, the right word. All of these pre-Socratics are kind of a little flamboyant. also not the right word. Jeez, they're interesting. All of them are very interesting. That's, that's what we'll say.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we are saying they're Greek, but I'd also like to point out that, and we're, we're not going to talk about where each one of them came from, but I would call it the Hellenistic world which would be the greek peninsula and then all of the islands that are out in the aegean but that also includes turkey uh, modern day turkey and even some of them you know traveled to egypt so you know that eastern part of the mediterranean is really where most of them were located and again these are pre-socratic so just for a point of reference socrates which which we identify as the turning point in in philosophy socrates lived from uh, 470 to 399 So only one or two of these are contemporaries of Socrates, and just barely, like Democritus dies the the year that Socrates is born. So that's kind of the world they lived in. These other philosophers were aware of these thinkers. They weren't quite contemporary, but it would be someone as if like, today you're learning about FDR, or someone who, who lived not too long ago, but wasn't necessarily still alive, but we know a lot about them. I guess the last thing to say before we jump in is, again, their philosophical project was the natural world. And like Andrew pointed out, yeah, they were wrong on a lot of these things. So the question is, well, well, then why do we study them? So it's not what they thought and what their conclusions were necessarily, but it's how they thought. Their curiosity is admirable in the world of philosophy. And and the way the way they went about things, so so that's why if you're ever wondering, you know, why do we study these pre-Socratics that were so wrong on everything? Well, that's why they're like this precursor of what ph- philosophical thought really is, and the importance of curiosity. Are you a curious person, Andrew?
1: No, <laughs> not not in the same way as these guys. These guys are kind of wackos, in my opinion. <laughs> wackos?
0: That's a, that's a big claim.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this Thales guy, the first one. Uh-huh. He's, he's, he's always struck me. I mean, okay, here's the thing too. Like he's kind of old 623 to 545 BC. So I'm not going to fault him for a lot of things. But I think the first thing that's kind of cool about him is that he thought that the earth was like a flat, a flat plate or something, um uh, a disc. The earth was like a Frisbee floating on like a sea in the universe. So I think I always thought that was kind of weird, uh, but kind of cool, too. And he just has this huge fascination with water that I just I don't I don't I don't get (laughs) it. I don't get it. The sea, he thought that everything was made out of water. And so I, I don't know. He's just just very, very interesting guy.
0: Yeah, a lot of them are just very esoteric because we don't know exactly what they meant by all the claims that they said, because we don't have their writings that really unpacks it all. And the other thing I really find fascinating about all of these philosophers is that of course in a in a world where they don't have the scientific knowledge we do have today they're trying to make sense of the world with their with the tools that they had available to them and being that the greek culture was surrounded by water and practically defined by water i guess it's not surprising that's true uh, in a way that that they thought that Thales thought that uh that everything floated on a giant ocean, and that everything's made of water. But yeah, uh, he was. Uh, so his dates were six twenty three to five forty five, which is pretty far back there. And again, only fragments remain. So let's talk about this one particular, which you already mentioned. One of his fragments is the source of all things is water, and the fun about all this is like we don't know what he meant by that. So we got to be playful with with this idea, and we we do a lot of conjecture. So the, the source of all things is water. Now, Andrew, I know you think they're wackos, but why might Thales think this is true? Well, just from a biological component, I think there's certainly
1: a lot of things that, a lot of organisms and things in the Greek world that depend on water. They're probably making uh, pots and stuff that depended on water that were very important. They had to drink water. Yeah, water's also kind of it's a fascinating thing too. So you have written down water it's flexible, it changes, it can change states of matter easily. Just kind of an interesting thing. It's true, like you mentioned earlier. I think that the Greeks were fascinated by water. They were very much a well, at least later, but I think now too, they're very much dependent on like a heavy navy and stuff. They're all on a beautiful ocean too. So so I'm sure that 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 oh, yeah. kind of uh, that kind of contributes. They probably got a lot of their fish and stuff, meat from from the water. So yeah, it's 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 mm-hmm. probably not too surprising.
0: Yeah, and it makes very basic observations, which human beings have known since the agricultural revolution, is is obviously, you know, you you give a plant water and it does better, you know. <laughs> uh, and and so in that way, you know, it's sort of the the source of life. Things can't live without water. That's just a basic observation about nature. And yeah, I think too, you know, like you mentioned, water is is like a little more mysterious than, say, land. You know, land, rocks, dirt. Sure there are things under under the crust and And like in caves and everything, which Greece is filled with caves because of all their mountains. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly mysterious and why some of their holy places were or (laughs) sacred places were located in caves. But also like the water is mysterious, too. Right. You think about that ocean that's around them and how beneath the depths, you know, lies this mystery. And I, I can see how water would be something that's fascinating. And like you said, yeah, it changes states. Right. So ice or to vapor and then back to water. Whereas, you know, rocks and land and I mean, you can grind a rock down into sand or something, but like water was a little more mysterious than than probably other elements. Although I would imagine something like wind was very mysterious, Mm, too.
1: It's true. Yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah.
1: There's one more famous quote from Thales that all things are full of gods. This is kind of I'm you know, I don't even know how to preface it. Um, (laughs) I feel like. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I feel like this one's not quite as odd as. um. Maybe the water thing, but that maybe that's just because I've been, been panpsychasting a little too much lately. Just kidding, <laughs> but yeah. What, what do you think about this, Mister
0: Parsons? All things are full of gods. Oh, I love this quote. I really do. I mean, what a, what a mysterious sort of quote. And I think of the Platonic conception of human reason being like the spark of the divine, mm-hmm. uh, in all of us as, as they called it. But even this conception, you know, what, what animates things, what animates a snail or what causes the wind or what causes rocks to form the way they do. And you yeah, I can see in a, a pre-scientific world as far back as the seventh century BC of things being full of gods. And of course, there are plenty of religions today that still have that conception. It's called pan- pantheism or panentheism, depending on which which version of that you want to go with. But yeah, the idea of that uh, that everything either is God or there is some of God in all things. I mean, even Christians, mainstream Christians believe that, in a sense, reality is an expression of God. Uh, or some Christians also believe it, you know, panentheistic view, which is God. There's a bit of God in, in everything and in every one. So I don't know, it's just a really wonderful quote. I think it's fascinating.
1: Let me just say this too, just to, to bring attention to how Thales is, is is talking about things. He's saying, "The source of all things is water, and all things are full of God is and these are both quotes or, or fragments that are explaining the nature of things. Um, mm-hmm. So I have a I have a desk in front of me. the desk. I guess um, Thales, I don't know what he would necessarily, he wouldn't say like, you know, I pulled this desk out of uh, the the ocean or something. And that's that's why the desk is at my table, but the, the component parts that make up this probably would, I'm guessing plastic, but let's just pretend there's no plastic in my table um, and just wood, you know, how do you grow a tree? How, how do you get wood from a tree? How do you get a tree, you know, nutrients and water and such. So yeah. It makes sense in that way. Um, And then I guess the source of my table could be water. And and maybe that's that's very easy. That's an easier and more compelling uh, way to think of it. But and then the all things are full of gods. If we're still talking about my table, I don't know what that means. I don't know if there's like a a part of a god trapped in my table or something. But (laughs) I I do I do think it's interesting that he's talking about that. And and I'm kind of curious about that, too. But I want to kind of punt this question down the road till we look at a few more of these pre-Socratics.
0: Yeah, it's really easy to, um, to try to unpack it all yeah. here with this first philosopher. And the only thing I'll add to, to what you said is, is in both those quotes, you noted that he says or uses the word all, mm-hmm. which reminds me of, of even still what the project with modern physics is today, um, which is trying to find that ultimate theory or that uh, a theory of everything. Uh, that explains all of reality i mean these guys were doing the same oh, thing. for sure they're trying to fit yeah they're trying to figure out the, the one thing right uh that explains reality the one unifying theory okay well however we're pronouncing his name Or the next philosopher that we want to talk about is anna samander is that right i don't know
1: Ye- you feel good about that uh... <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Zamander yeah. is how i'm okay. saying it uh he so this guy dies uh like almost at the same time that thales did so they were contemporaries of each other uh he lived 610 to 546 bc now again like making a connection with modern physics everyone's kind of familiar with this idea anyway at least the idea of of a multiverse so here we go uh and said the world is only one of a myriad of worlds that evolves and dissolves into something that he called, and I love this word that he called the boundless that's that's now,
1: such such a you thing to like though too it's so, it's such like I don't, a dram- no, is it like yeah dramatic
0: the boundless what does that mean? oh, I love it, I love it. I think it's funny you associate it with something i would like
1: <laughs> it's like it's like it you know it has like that very um. Romanticism, you know I don't know. Yeah, yeah. it has that r- romanticism vibe that whenever I think of that I think of you. So yes. Not not that <laughs> not that I think you're like a boundless person or something. Whatever that
0: means. Oh uh, no, I have my boundaries. <laughs> my limits. Let's put it that way. Yeah, but what's cool about this is this is a conception of a reality that's beyond ours. Not only in that there are a myriad of worlds, but also that those worlds dissolve and evolve into something else larger called the boundless. And we might call that the universe. I don't know if that's what he really kind of thought, because we do know in our universe, things come in and out of existence and are part of this massive thing that we can't really even conceive because it's so large. So maybe that's what he meant by the boundless or, or who knows? No, that's that's the ultimate answer. Who knows? Who knows what he thought? What do you think?
1: I don't know i think I think uh in his an I think he's who I find the uh, craziest and the most compelling of all maybe I don't know like i don't I'm just really confused I think it'd be really cool if we had like more of these fragments from people so he could figure out more of what the heck they're talking about, maybe he mm-hmm. like stumbled into a cave with a certain gas or something and just, you know, wrote down. Well, just something
0: thought, we've talked about in recent episodes with philosophy of religion is necessary yeah, and contingent I was beings. Just thinking about that. Yeah. So, I mean, again, just like Thales, he's trying to find the, the source of all things, right? And using his observation, he sings, sees that horses die and horses are born, people die, people are born. You know, things come in and out of existence. And sort of like a religious argument, he's like, okay, uh, all those things had to be had to be created or had to come from something else. So in a way it's sort of a necessary contingent type argument. Do you see do you think that's a right read of it? Sure.
1: Yeah. I don't think that's wrong. I think that's fine. Um, I was thinking about in, in epistemology and in the field of philosophy where we study the way of like knowing things, a very common thing Mm -hmm. to do is to imagine, um, like an infinite uh multiverse or something of world a, a myriad of worlds and uh and, mm-hmm. and we consider how those might be different. So maybe maybe um Anaximander was prefacing Nozick by twenty five hundred years or something.
0: <laughs> anyway, you know the 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 point with this guy and Thales is that they were both after the same thing and they had a different interpretation of that, right? One is more based on this idea of a, of a substance like water, and this other one is about uh, maybe not quite like what we would call a designer god or anything, but, but there are substances that, that had to come from something, and that something is so massive and vague, and we have to call it the boundless mm-hmm. and mysterious. Let's move on to our next philosopher, Parmenides. Did I say that? yeah, right.
1: one of one of my one of my favorites, one of my favorites. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Well, then I'll shut no. up.
1: No, well, not n- not, because lo- not because I love, not because I especially love him, but he's uh, he's I think the first big Italian philosopher, so you gotta you gotta love him, love him just for that. Oh, yeah,
0: I didn't know that. So we're in Italy. He's
1: from this place called uh, Velia, which is uh-huh. um, on. Where is it? It's in in Salerno.
0: So it's on the peninsula. It's not an island.
1: Yeah, it's on the peninsula. It's uh, about, I don't know, it's it's between Naples and Sicily. Okay. It's right on the coast of western south Italy. Right on like the, if you're thinking of a boot, like the thing that curves on the boot. But anyway, yeah, sounds like a cool dude. Um, 515 to 460 B.C. And he believed that everything has always existed.
0: Yeah, this goes back to that wonderful law that we constantly refer to in philosophy as the law of causation. Uh, And we got into those philosophical arguments with philosophy, religion, uh, like, you know, have things always existed? um, Or or was there a beginning?
1: Yeah, I think that um, Parmenides is really, really interesting. Yeah,
0: because I
1: think this idea that nothing can come out of nothing, that everything has always existed. It's pretty cool. And also, oh yeah, you have this written down. Yeah, he believed that nothing could ever change, which we'll have someone who contrasts with that in a second, but this guy's pretty cool. I think Parmenides thought that what makes up a thing are a set of certain conditions, and those certain conditions combined together make up a thing. And if you take away one of those conditions, mm-hmm you fundamentally change what the thing is. And so he believed that if things are always changing or if a thing changes, then it's losing these conditions, then it can't be the same thing. And it's it's just going to kind of result in some kind of regress. And I think in philosophy and metaphysics, we consider, we consider Par, Parmenides like the father of metaphysics just because mm. his stuff is so, it's complex and it's talking about the nature of, how things are and, and such it's quite unfortunately very complicated i think anyway what, what do you think of parmenides
0: again like he just fits so well in with with all these other thinkers and that he thought something a little bit different than everyone else and, and when you combine them all together you have just a whole bunch of really interesting reflections on reality yeah this idea that the universe began frankly is a very western idea and it comes from us or it comes to us from the abrahamic faiths that became dominant in our area that you know god created so therefore there was uh, there was a point when there was nothing and if you look at a number of other creation myths throughout mesopotamia and egypt i mean there is some description sometimes of there being nothing but there's lots of descriptions where there is something and that something is just a massive void or a or dark water, or something like that, in some of these other creation myths, indicating that, well, maybe something has always existed. It might not be certainly what exists now. So the idea of everything always just existing, like the universe, was not a terribly foreign idea to the Greeks, who had not yet been exposed to the Abrahamic faiths. So this idea that nothing can come out of nothing, and, and nothing that exists can become nothing, yeah, it's a really... It's really intriguing, and uh, I, again, I think modern physics with the Big Bang theory has got things whittled down to microseconds at the beginning of the universe. But the big question is, what's on the other side of that? Like, what's the snap? What's the what's the snap of the finger that began the universe? And is there something on the other side of that? Has the universe always been and just contracted down and then blew up again? We don't know. So anyway, Parmenides is like, yeah, it makes sense that like everything has always existed because. So something can't come from nothing.
1: Let's talk about Heraclitus, and then I, I can. I think it's going to be really easy to contrast the two.
0: Everyone knows. No, everyone doesn't know. Um, so Heraclitus, Heraclitus is my favorite of, of all of these guys, mostly because I know the most about him. And I find his, uh, his fragments really fascinating to work with. If you want to talk about a translation rabbit hole, uh, you can go out there and start getting different uh, translations of Heraclitus's fragments that are left over from his one work that we know of, which was called On Nature. There's such small fragments that you have to try to make sense out of them and how words are translated can change it significantly and all that sort of stuff. So we're going to talk about some of those fragments, but he lived from 535 to 475 B.C. and was very well known amongst uh, the people of the time when Socrates and Plato and all those guys were doing their thing. In fact, uh, Socrates mentions Heraclitus. Rather, Euripides, the the playwright, supposedly asked Socrates what he thought of Heraclitus' book on nature, and supposedly Socrates replied uh, that what he understood was excellent, and so were the parts that he didn't. (laughs) So even Socrates found Heraclitus difficult. And he had access to the text in its original language. So Heraclitus, honestly, like through the Middle Ages in Europe, really becomes a, a fascination for a lot of thinkers. Heraclitus is featured pretty prominently in Raphael's School of Athens. And he, because we only end up with fragments, he seems very mysterious. So he also has all these nicknames that we hear him called throughout the Middle Ages, like uh, Heraclitus the Obscure or the Dark Philosopher or... Sometimes he's just called the Riddler because his fragments are so just mysterious. yet obviously he held great sway, not only here in Greece, but all through uh, what through the classical Roman period as well. So So Heraclitus, everyone, here we go.
1: Heraclitus is well contrasted with Parmenides because Parmenides thought that nothing was changing, basically, everything was just eternally existing. And Heraclitus thought everything was basically eternally changing all the time. You can't step in the same river twice, for it's not the same river and you're not the same person. Very famous quote. I think in a a past episode, we mentioned that that was one of the early, early podcast names of open door philosophy.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) We were thinking of, uh, gosh, what was it?
1: The same river twice, right?
0: The, the same river twice or yeah, something, something was, good, like was a possible title. yeah, yeah.
1: Anyway, yeah, I, I think and this distinctions really cool between Parmenides and Heraclitus. So Parmenides, nothing ever changed. Heraclitus, everything is always in changing. And this debate has carried down literally throughout the centuries and is the subject of still modern day philosophy and theoretical physics. There's this big debate between the A theory of time and the B theory of time. Yeah, so so the the A theory of time is something more like um, Heraclitus, or the A theory of time I think has been inspired by Heraclitus, and the B theory of time is inspired by Parmenides, and so I just think that's cool. It's these ideas about change, the nature of the universe, how time really is. That's really carried throughout till modern days. In a really cool and fascinating mm-hmm. way, right? Like we we're saying that one of the big things about these pre-Socratics is that they're trying to figure out the way, the nature of the world, the way things are. Mm-hmm. We're still seeing that um, the theories that they had are still extremely influential on us today.
0: I want to mention a number of his fragments, and, and this is the one you mentioned is is the very first one, right? I think it's one of the more insightful quotes that you can use. To think about the nature of things. So you, you cannot step into the same river twice, for it's not the same river, and you're not the same person. It, you know, this is he said all things flow, like the most basic characteristic of nature is change. And we see that in nature, but we also see that in ourselves, even as like if you want to talk about our conscious selves, like we change over time. We have we acquire different preferences, we have different biases, our biases can change, our our beliefs can change. We're constantly changing. Our bodies are constantly changing. I side with Heraclitus on this one far more than I do Parmenides. I think it really is a fundamental feature of nature that all things change. Now there, it, there might be some larger <laughs> thing that orchestrates all that uh, that that doesn't change. But it's it, this seems right. And by the way, uh, you know, I said or you said this is a maybe a famous quote. I, I thought this was true as well. I got to tell you a funny story last year who i can't remember who i was talking to i was talking to a student maybe a teacher i can't recall and i said oh yeah this is th- this quote is like you know the second or third most famous philosophy quote maybe behind i think therefore i am and this person was like really i'm like yeah you can't step in the same river twice you don't know this quote I'm like no i went over to the english department right and i went up and down the hallway asking each teacher you know i asked the first one one of my colleagues who is like involved a lot in classics and stuff. I'm like, surely he'll know this. And I, I say the, I say the quote, and he's like, No, nah, I'm not familiar with that. I like my jaw drops. And so I go up and down the hall. I, I mean, I feel like, uh, you know, I, f- I felt like Zarathustra coming down from the mountain, and all the village people like had no idea what I was saying. So, so I did get to one teacher, and she said, "Isn't that that Pocahontas song?" And I'm like, Oh gosh, yes. I'm like, Yes, it's in there. No one. I mean, I I I asked like fourteen, <laughs> fourteen teachers. No one had heard of it. I'm like, I was very disappointed. I really thought it was a super popular quote that people knew, but I guess not. At least not those fourteen people I asked. So, anyway, that's funny. Yeah, I, I
1: not a, probably not a lot of people are are big um, big Heraclitus readers, but I think it. I think it is a a rather famous, probably in the philosophy world, a rather famous philosophy
0: quote. um yeah okay well a few more things heraclitus didn't say this verbatim but i like it uh, i like to paraphrase it like this uh he said everything is fire you know think about that intensity everything is fire so heraclitus used fires as, as a metaphor for change you know linked with this idea of flow which, which he thought was the real basis of the universe. So so just think about fire for a bit, right? Like it, like you're sitting in your backyard, you got a fire pit going or your campfire or fire in your fireplace. Like fire never stays the same. It, it's never calm. It's like, there's no such thing as a calm mm-hmm. fire. It's always in movement, you know, and it, it consumes. And Heraclitus believed that nothing can stay the same for long. And, uh, and so fire was just such a good example of that breaks breaks wood down into ash. So he didn't say directly everything is fire, but, but here's one of his fragments. There's a number of fragments that deal with fire, but here's this one. He says, This world, which is the same for all, no one of gods or men has made, but it was ever, is now, and ever shall be, an ever-living fire, with measures of it kindling and measures going out. Now, what he meant by that? We don't really know. That's the fun of the fragments, but uh, he mentions fire multiple times in his in the fragments.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting. It, it reminds me maybe not in the same way, but it it this idea that there's always going to be change, that's always always occurring in the universe and, and everything kind of being broken down. Um it it kind of reminds me of the second law of thermodynamics and in physics that in a closed system entropy is i think decreasing. So there's always going to be mm. Uh, an increasing amount of chaos in a in a closed system. If this is the example that I heard, and I thought it was pretty cool. If you have three markers and you put them like facing together, close together, and you put them on the middle of a sidewalk, the odds that those three markers will still be in that position if you come back like a few days mm-hmm. later, very small. And just yeah. it's representing this principle of change. So I'm sure, I'm sure whoever came up with this idea of entropy was a big Heraclitus fan.
0: Yeah, yeah. And if they weren't, they figured out who Heraclitus was, they'd be like, oh, huh. That's my theory. <laughs> <laughs> What's this guy doing? Okay, another big theory of his that I, I like because um because I think it's very yin yang and, and very Taoist in a way, is he always talked about well, he always talked about it. It's it's his fragments. Um but the unity of opposites. So here's two quotes from the fragments that that seem to uh, address unity of opposites. So one is, the cosmos works by harmony of tensions, like the lyre and the bow, which of course was an instrument uh, back then, and those are two different things, and in order to make sound, there must be this friction between the bow and the lyre string, which creates vibrations. Um, They seem opposite of each other's. But another one here, another quote is, uh, from the strain of binding opposites comes harmony. So again, he doesn't like lay out a theory of unity of opposites, but there's a couple of things in his fragments that that seem to indicate that. And we see this idea of of unity of opposites in other philosophies, even Greek ones, but but even in the East from from the Tao Te Ching.
1: I think it's interesting. I'm I'm always very confused. So I'm guessing how these like pre-Socratics came up with these ideas is that they just were, you know, like observing the world around them and, and making observations mm-hmm. and such. So I'm always so so interested in, in how they come up with these ideas. Another Heraclitus quote that all you Stoics out there will will love. The content of your character is your choice day by day. What you choose, what you think, what you do is who you become. A second, also very Stoic quote. Applicants for wisdom do what I have done, inquire within.
0: Aristotle especially appreciate that one.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, I was thinking that too. So this this first one, the content of your character is your choice day by day. What you choose is what you become. That's so. It's such a Greek idea, right? Like these these Greeks are so influenced by their epics that came before them, and you know this uh, this importance of developing your character and having a good character. It's stoic, but you're. I think we're seeing this influence from earlier epics in, in this work of Heraclitus. But it, it is cool. I'm i I'm, I know the Stoics probably loved him and applicants for wisdom, do what I have done, inquire within. Like Mr Parsons said, very Aristotelian idea that really the answer to all your problems, or not maybe all your problems, but what you should do, your decision procedure in a specific case should come from your reason entirely from your reason within yourself so.
0: yeah and it also makes me think of one of the inscriptions at the temple of Delphi uh, which is very famous know thyself right and I think I want to say Aristotle said something I'm paraphrasing said something along the lines of uh, the the beginnings of all knowledge is is knowing yourself or something similar like that inward reflection this last one <laughs> uh, this last one really warms my heart I don't, who knows what Heraclitus meant by this. It's a fragment. But this last one is uh, dogs bark at what they cannot understand. And the reason I like it is because, of course, you could just be talking about actual dogs. Like, anyone who has a dog knows that sometimes they just start barking, and you're like, what is going on? You know, we think, okay, well, they don't have the capacity to reason like we do, so dogs just randomly bark at stuff that they don't understand. But I like it because it's a really good, like, sick burn. I see these people making ignorant claims on on Twitter or whatever social media. I'm like, yeah, it's just dogs barking. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my favorite. That's the a ultimate sick one. burn. Yeah, that's good. Like it's so good. You're calling the person a dog. I mean, yeah. you just be like, eh, dogs bark at what they can't <laughs> understand. It's so dismissive.
1: Well, maybe maybe that's even an insult to a dog. You know. <laughs>
0: Sorry, this is not the virtuous side of me that you you guys are experiencing right now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, good old Heraclitus, always good for a laugh.
1: This next philosopher is Avatar: The Last Airbender's favorite, Empedocles, four ninety four to four thirty four. Wait, this this is during this is starting to be during Socrates' time, right?
0: It is, yeah. yeah. Socrates was born in three seventy. So no, I, Socrates. I think four seventy, right? Four seventy. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. yeah yes. Yeah. yeah. So Socrates was born in four seventy. So, yeah. And Peticles, Yes. Just to answer your question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's
1: great. So, f- finally, starting to get into some fun territory here. Just kidding. So uh, this this guy's pretty cool. I think. So he's he's looking back at people before him. He's saying, "Well." Uh, Heraclitus, I don't know if, if everything is everything is fire, like Mister Parsons said. And um, Thales, I don't know if everything is actually just water. And so maybe things are combinations of all of these things because maybe there's some merit to to what you say. Thalesia it does seem like my desk might have originated from water. Um, Heraclitus, sure, maybe everything is, is always changing, and and, and fi- you know, fire is an important element in, in change. So he thought that there was multiple things that make up the substance of substance of nature and specifically four things, earth, air, water, and fire. Whoosh.
0: Whoosh. That's right. So fans of Avatar, the last airbender will appreciate this. Yeah. It's a really cool theory. I mean, you in a very basic sense. You're like, well, that kind of makes sense, you know? Uh, And he says that like Heraclitus, these roots are forever combined and separated and combined again, like forever, which is really reminiscent of sort of the atom theory, right? Uh, which actually we'll get to with our next month, Democritus. But, you know, he said this is earth, air, uh, fire and water. So, so so, a good example of this is painting, right? So so there's all kinds of colors that you can use in a painting, but you don't need all of those colors. You know, you go to Hobby Lobby or Michael's or whatever and the, or the art store and you buy like 30 tubes of just all this color, you don't need all those colors. You just need three, red, blue, and yellow. And from those three, every color can be made. And so like it's kind of an example with earth, air, fire, and water, depending on the combination and the way that they're combined, these elements can create a wide variety of other elements. I guess that kind of makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think Empedocles... Well, I, I'm not going to say he was on to something because I, I don't think he's on to something. But, you know, it, it's it's definitely, it definitely makes sense. It's into it's intuitive, especially what he's coming from um, in, that, mm-hmm. in that tradition. So, so, yeah, I think it's understandable.
0: And, you know, if you talk about the advancement of science is oftentimes based on who, what, what research was done before. I mean, the famous Newton quote, you know, if I've seen further, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. This is Empedocles taking other people's theories mm-hmm. and his own observations and coming up with new theories based on what was previously done. And we end up with something a little more sophisticated, right? Earth, air, fire, and water, and those can be forever combined over and over again. Um, think, I think I'm right on this. He also thought, you know, as far as a, a theory related to like, how, how can we observe these things? Maybe it's a theory about how we see things. I, I want to say I read something about how he said, when we look at a mountain, the earth elements that we are made of can acknowledge the earth elements that we're seeing. right? Like, or if we're looking at a river on this mountain, uh, the water elements of ourselves recognize the water that it's seeing. So these things are also in us, and that's how we can perceive the, the other things and the combinations that they're made up of.
1: That's funny. That, that, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but it reminds me of that game recognizes game quote. <laughs> don't tell me that. <laughs>
0: game recognizes game. Yes. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So if you're a baller, you recognize a baller when you see him.
1: Let's move on to everybody's favorite and probably most compelling pre-Socratic, at least in my opinion, the famous Democritus.
0: Yes, which has nothing to do with democracy. A lot of people sometimes (laughs) think like, oh, Athens was the first democracy, so Democritus must have been the guy. No, Democritus was not the guy. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead, Andrew.
1: (laughs) No, that's true. Very good point. Uh, So Democritus, 460 to 370 BC, and he is very famous for believing that everything was not made out of fire earth water air but was made out of these tiny blocks that were the smallest unit of matter called atoms.
0: Yeah. I mean so small in fact that he's like you can't see them.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And <laughs> they're invisible to
1: us. And we we can't uh we can see the influence of past pre-Socratics like Parmenides on Democritus because Democritus believes that these atoms that make up all these things are—they are the things that are really unchangeable in the universe. So the atoms really can't be destroyed, um, and they're just kind of these eternal things that are always existing. And and when like someone dies, or like an animal decays, or a tree decays, or whatever, those atoms are just kind of going out and, and changing. Not changing their physical structure of an atom, but they're just kind of joining new things and, and becoming new things. Yeah, they're they're just you say it much better than I do. They're reconnecting to form new things.
0: Yeah, and it it's interesting. He describes them as having not, not that he could directly observe this, but he describes these atoms as having hooks and barbs, so that you know when they do disperse <laughs> and they run into other atoms, you know they kind of stick together, they hook together, which. Oh, I'm not. I'm not so great at chemistry. Is there any correlation there? Is that kind of how atoms work? Yeah. How are they attracted
1: atoms? To each atoms other? are attracted to each other because of. I think there's 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 charges on on the electrons, and I that circle atoms, and and I think the electrons connect atoms to each other or something. I think that sounds right.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating that you know that he conceived this. I don't know how he justified it because all of this is just in his head because you he can't can't directly observe it. Makes a lot of sense based on the predecessors, his predecessors that came came before him, and he also did agree with the notion that nothing could come from nothing. This is why he says atoms are eternal and immutable. Right? They might dissolve, you know, or they might come apart when something dies, but then they they still exist, and they eventually just get brought back together to to make something else. And so, so, so they're eternal, and in that way, you know, he could maintain his claim that nothing could come from nothing and that's because we have these eternal parts called atoms. And I, I
1: just before we end on Democritus, it's not like he, you know he predicted a, a perfect like it, the atom that he's thinking of is not the atom that we we think of today that we can observe. Mm. It's you know he right. he literally thought they were like little minuscule blocks uh, and like mm-hmm. you said that had like, like Legos. yeah exactly and mm-hmm. so it's it's not that, but definitely influential. The the he's definitely, of course, the the reason that we have the word atom, and it's just because it's the smallest smallest unit of matter.
0: Yeah, it's just like so. Now we're at the end here. This is why the pre-Socratics just fascinate me. We we've made so many allusions to modern science that it's not like they got it wrong. Well, I mean they did get it wrong, but gosh, like here is Democritus in the fifth century B.C. And he's conceived of the atom. Not the way that we understand an atom now and today. Or And as Amanda, you know, he comes up with this idea of, of sort of a multiverse. Uh, there's a myriad of worlds that evolves and dissolve. This is what's fascinating to me and how maybe in a way science is very intuitive, but also it shows how you you know build on the knowledge of your predecessors before and, and can come to these conclusions. And it makes me wonder like, for ourselves, you know, where, where is, where are we going to be in, you know, 500 years? For sure. You know, based on the knowledge we're creating today. Well,
1: everybody, that's going to be it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and enjoying our first episode of the series of our Who Were They series. Uh, for the pre-Socratics
0: yeah in future episodes in this series we're going to have uh who is Socrates who is Plato and who is Aristotle so so look forward to those in the future uh thanks for listening again everyone uh you can certainly check us out on any of our social medias we try to post engaging philosophical stuff and uh and so that's on twitter instagram and our website Philosophy. Dot com or you can email us please do at contact at thank you to kevin
1: mcleod for his use of music right now um, it's very groovy and we hope you enjoyed our new music at the beginning of the episode today too let us know how
0: you liked it yeah let us know how you like the new intro we'll be interested in that so, I guess that's it. That's it, Andrew. Yeah, I guess We're that's done. all. Something's changing. Something is changing. We are done. And, listener, you are done too. So, hey, uh, remember, when your life is in need of a little philosophy, the door is always open. See ya. Peace. All right, you want to do the next dude you want me to intro it? Sure, sure. sure. <laughs> we
1: we can talk about him. We can. I, I can. I
0: can debate how to pronounce his name. <laughs>
1: Anaximander. Anix, Anaximander. Anix, Anaximander. Yeah, I think that's right. Anaximander. Yeah. Is that, okay. is, that, is that how you feel about it too? Anix-
0: well, I always used a Z, but like, what do I know? Ana- I always said Anaximander. Anaximander. That um, could be right. I. I don't yeah. even know how Greek vowels work. And and is. Oh wait, that know, that would, that would so. probably
1: make sense. I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. How about you, and tra- wait?
0: We say Xenophon. That starts with an X, but pronounce it as a Z. Xenophon.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Welcome I, to I, our I,
0: linguistics podcast.
1: I can I can look up the <laughs> I can look up the Greek real quick.
0: Oh, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know the fun the fun part is that we don't know how to pronounce it. So no, I, I, I like their it. like their claims. It remains a mystery.
1: I think you're right. Oh gosh, I'm I'm okay. so rusty whatever
0: (laughs) we can say it however we want that's yeah we can say it however we want because it's our podcast (laughs) yeah all right go ahead oh Oh, you want me to do it (laughs) all right